Good morning, everybody. Um, I'd just like to invite Betty Ford to read the Bible to us. Uh, we're reading this morning from Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to read the first couple of verses and then skip down to the 26th verse. So I'll give you a second to get your Bibles out. The beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds of the air, and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food and it was so God saw all that he had made and it was very good and there, were, there was evening, there was morning the sixth day thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array by the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing so on the seventh day he rested from all his work and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Thank you, Betty. Um, it would be really helpful if you did have a Bible open to Genesis 1 and 2, because uh, we, we are going to look at uh, parts out of both of chapters 1 and 2, and... Um, and we will um, see uh, just little bits of it. So uh, some are on the screen, but it would be helpful if you've got it there. Let's pray together uh, as we uh, begin to look at God's word together. Uh, loving Father, we give you great thanks and praise that you have brought us together this morning and that we can come together because of the forgiveness that we find in Jesus and because of the new life that you give us, the new birth that you give us. And we pray that our time together now, looking into your word, our Lord would fill us with conviction of the truth and the faith to follow you, that you'd give us the faith to follow you, Lord, that, that you would um, use this time to transform our minds and our thinking, that we might uh, more closely follow you and better live in this world for you and for your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that quote's already come up there. This is a quote from C.S. Lewis that I really like. Um, 
I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. It's one of the key truths of our Christian faith. The remarkable thing about the gospel is that it invites us to have God's perspective on the world around us. This is such a foundational truth that we need to take it on if we're going to grow at all in our faith, if we're going to share our faith with others, this is a really fundamental thing that we need to understand. And I want this to set the tone for what we're going to talk about today and how we're going to speak to those issues that Paul mentioned before. When we understand our world from God's perspective, then we can really speak truth into those areas. And I want to begin with something that I've really been struck with as I've been preparing for this talk. And actually, um, we're doing a very similar thing with the scripture classes this term. And it's, and it's really, um, really struck me. It's a pattern that I hadn't actually noticed before um, that you see when Paul talks about what a new believer's life is. Um, a believer having received God's grace, someone having accepted Jesus, a Christian someone who's got God's Holy Spirit inside of them, what he says frequently, really frequently, is that because of their accepting Jesus, because of their following Christ, they have a new mind. Have a look at a couple of these verses with me. Okay. This is a verse from 1 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. So the non-Christian. But look at verse 15. The person with the Spirit... The Christian, the believer, can judge all things, but no human can judge those who have the Spirit. And then there's a quote from Isaiah. It says, Who can ever know what is in the Lord's mind? Can anyone ever teach him? And at the end of that, Paul says this really remarkable thing. But we, we believers, we who have the Spirit, have the mind of Christ. See, by God's Spirit in us, we have a new mind. It's Christ's spirit in us, and so our thinking and our perspective on our world becomes like his. It's in Ephesians 4. Look at this with me. But that is not the way of life in Christ that you learned about. You heard about Christ when you were taught about life in him. What you learned was the truth about Jesus. So he's describing the Christian experience, the Christian experience of coming to know Jesus, of trusting in Jesus. You were taught not to live the way you used to. You must get rid of your old way of life. That's because it has been made impure by the desire for things that lead you astray. And then look at how he, what he says next. Look at verse 23. You were taught to be made new in your thinking. In this verse, he says, it's not like our old selves, but we're given this new attitude, this new way of thinking. It's in Colossians as well. See, what I'm trying to show you is that there's a pattern to this. Every time Paul speaks about how someone becomes Christian, how someone accepts Jesus into their life, then the implication is that it changes the way they think. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And then what does he say? Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. See, the reality is that we're raised with Christ, but he tells us there that we need to align our desires with that reality. We are then to set our mind to reflect the things of Christ. 
And this is the last one we're going to look at. Romans 12, chapter 2. And in Romans 12, chapter 1, he says, In view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. And then in verse 2, he says this, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He says it again. Transformation happens as our minds are renewed. Over and over and over again, the outworking of being saved is having a new mind, now seeing things God's way. This means that it's actually more than just changed behaviour. We often get caught up in this, thinking that trusting Jesus, accepting Jesus, having God's mercy um, and forgiveness and all of those things results in changed behaviour. But each of these verses, Paul actually shows that it's more than that and there's something that comes before that. It's not merely changed behaviour, but significantly says that that the changed behaviour comes later. But first of all, it's about having a changed heart, a changed mind. It rather, how we act flows out of how we, what we believe about things. So I want you to think about this. Where there's obvious sin in our lives, underpinning that, we will have an unbiblical understanding of the issue. Where we make mistakes, it's because we've got it wrong in how we're thinking about it. And Obviously, when we look at all these things that are going on for us in our world, it's because the world just has the wrong perspective on it. It doesn't see things from God's way. And likewise, where we find that our Christian perspective or a particular behaviour is at odds with the way around us, the way people around us live, or how our children are taught at schools or taught to behave, or how our government should legislate on an issue... See, underpinning this is a completely different view and belief. It's a different worldview, a completely different worldview. So to help uh, explain what a worldview is, we're actually going to watch a short uh, clip. And this is from a Christian apologist called uh, Ravi Zacharias. You might have heard of him before. He's an Indian-born Christian apologist, and he's a really articulate guy. So I'm going to put that on, and he'll explain to us what a worldview is. worldview a lot in this series. What is a worldview? You know, the interesting thing is, uh, one day I was going to speak on the subject in Hong Kong, and as I stood up to speak, one of the lenses of my glasses fell off. I was to read a text, and there I was looking at a pair of glasses with one lens that worked, and there was no lens on the other side, and everything was distorted, which was ironic, because I was going to talk about a worldview, in a sense, as the lens through which you ultimately look at reality. And uh, as we've dealt with the four issues of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny, those are the particular questions that have to be answered. And when they are put together, they form your worldview. So a worldview is a set of assumptions or assertions you have made through which you look at every choice and every decision that ultimately comes in life to shape especially your values and your spiritual commitments that are made in your day-to-day living. It is a critical thing, and the problem is some people don't realize that they have a worldview. 
C.S. Lewis said about apologetics, the question is not whether you do apologetics or not. The only question is whether you have what you already do in apologetics is good or not. And that's also the case of a worldview. It's not whether you have a worldview or not. It's a case of whether the one you do have is a truthful worldview or a false one. Something that important has to be tested. So how do we do that? It absolutely has to be tested. And there are two or three things I can say here. The classical way of testing a worldview involves three steps. Logical consistency, empirical adequacy, and experiential relevance. What does that mean? Your answers have to be logically consistent. They have to be empirically adequate, meaning you're able to verify them in situations like the resurrection from the dead, like the archaeological claims of the Bible, like the historicity of the Bible. So that is the empirical uh, component in it. And then experiential relevance, that all of this is also relevant to your life, not just some kind of uh, an abstract uh, argument that you give to things. Now, there are two ultimate tests, correspondence and coherence. To particular questions, your answers must correspond to reality. Meaning by that, if you say, I came here in a red car and it's parked right in front of the building, that is a correspondence test I will put. I can walk out of here and see if that red car is actually there or you're spinning some kind of a line to me on that. Now, if you're in a courtroom and you say, I didn't commit that murder, maybe you're telling the truth, but that does not mean you have no implications in it. How will the attorney find out whether you are completely telling the truth or not? They will take all of your answers, put them together, and make sure they are coherent. So there's correspondence and coherence. Let me say something very important that is easily forgotten. Sometimes worldviews are systemically false. The system itself is flawed. And you don't have to examine all of the details to know the worldview is flawed. You can see that something central to it is a flaw. For example, the Quran says Jesus never really died on the cross. It only appeared to the people that he died. Jewish historians, pagan historians, Greek historians, Roman historians, Christian historians all say that he died on the cross. So when a particular book can make an assertion like that, that is false. You immediately know there's something in that book and that worldview that could be systemically flawed because it denies the very death of Jesus Christ, which is intrinsic to the Christian faith. So going back, logical consistency, empirical adequacy, experiential relevance, correspondence to truth in particular statements, coherence as a whole worldview. And if you notice a systemic flaw, there are danger signs of the rest of the worldview. That's what I like about the Christian faith. It corresponds to reality. It coheres as a worldview. It's logically consistent. I can test it out, and it brings relevance to your life in all of the most vital pursuits that you and I engage in. That's what makes Christianity not just an end-time thing. It makes it relevant for the now. So those big words that he used, origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. This is the background of what uh, the Bible will teach us and teach us truthfully from God's perspective. This is the backbone of a worldview. And so that's why we're going to the first couple of chapters of the Bible because in there are the seeds of everything else that the Bible will teach us. We see the Bible offer clear explanations for each one of these. And so we're going to just use that first couple of chapters as a bit of a case study this morning. So what about our origin? 
Before there was anything, the Bible tells us that there is an all-powerful God. Just look with me again at Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Sorry, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. See, our universe originates with a creator. God creates the universe. It says there that there was darkness, but that this God controlled the darkness. It says that there was water, but that his spirit was present. And then what does he do? He speaks into that space. He speaks into that creation. Now, the best I can do with me speaking into something is I can drive my car through the Macca's drive-thru and speak into the little box and maybe get a cheeseburger a couple of windows down. But God here can speak into this empty void and fashion the earth out of it. Out of his power, he forms and creates and makes this good earth. Notice that that's the word that keeps on coming up in this passage. Verse 2 taught us that the earth was formless and dark and empty, but that God is the one that brings order. He controls it. He turns it into something that is not dark, but is full of light. It's not raging, but it's formed. It's useful. The language used here is almost as if the unformed earth is total chaos. The earth was formless, empty, darkness. And yet God goes into that and he tames those turbulent waters. It's soaked in darkness, but God speaks into it. And from this, God is the God who molds and makes things. And God continues to bring order. On the first three days, he creates. And on the next three days, he fills the pattern set up through the rest of chapter 1 of Genesis is of God creating a space. He forms a space, days 1 through to 3, and then on days 4 through to 6, he fills it. There's a rhythm to it. Each day ends with night. Each day ends with God saying that it was good. There was evening, there was morning. And not only is that true of the origin of where we live, but it's our origin. See, it says at the end of this that we humans are created in the image of this creator. Our origin is in the creative mind of this God. We're given the charge to fill the creation, to subdue it. We're given the, um, we're given the command that we're to be like this God. Just as God has done in the process of creating, so he makes us so that we will do that too. We're given the command to multiply, to fill the earth with people, people who in turn will be like God and enjoy this good creation. If you look over in chapter 2, it's in verses 19 and 20, Adam's given this job of naming the animals, describing what they would be like, partnering in God with creating them. And we've already started to talk about meaning. See, our purpose is inherent in creation. Our purpose, our meaning is right there. We're made to bear the image of God. The curious thing is the way that God speaks about himself. Uh, you see it first in verse 26. Let me read that for you. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. See, 
when Jesus says our image, he's talking of himself in the plural. See, because we know from the rest of Scripture that God is the Trinity. God is three in one. He himself is relationship inside one being. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. He himself is one in relationship. And so for us to be created in his image means that we're created, our meaning is in relationship. We're created for relationship, made for relationship with God and made for good relationship with each other. In Genesis 2, we see Adam in this relationship. He's working with God. He's in relationship with God. He's there with God. Adam is like he's independently dependent. He's not part of God, but he can't exist or function apart from God either. And the other thing is that it tells us that Adam alone is not sufficient. The only time that something God has created in these verses isn't good is when Adam's there but not Eve. Have a look at verse uh, 20, chapter 2, verse 20. It says, So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And then from that, God fashions Eve, a partner for him, an equal for him, but an opposite for him. They were made for each other, made to be in relationship with each other. See, meaning is found in relationships. Relationship with God and relationships that flow out of God's good design. So what about the third thing that Ravi Zacharias said a worldview is made up of? What about morality? Well, in here we see that God's creation is described morally as good. That's a moral proclamation. Everything he makes, it's good. It's controlled. It's purposeful. It was wild, chaotic water, and yet God has formed it into something that is good, harmonious, out of his own good mind as a reflection of who he is. And God's good word is given to people. See, as God creates, he doesn't just let the people go and see how they're gonna, what they're going to make of it. He actually commands them. He guides them. He speaks to them. His command, his first one is, fill the earth and subdue it. With great blessing, God gives instructions for living. This is your good purpose, he says, to bear my image, to be like him. And that's our good purpose, to bear the image of God, filling the earth and bringing it under his control. And with great blessing too, God gives boundaries to that. See, he doesn't just let them roam around the earth to find their way. He creates the perfect home for them. At the start of chapter 2, we read about the garden where God's people could live. A garden, the idea that there's a safe place for them, a home. A home where there's total provision. In fact, we learn that God is present there with them. And we also, when speaking about morality, we learn that God gives them a choice. A choice. There's a tree of life. A tree of life that will give them everlasting life. And then the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See, God presents them with a choice, a choice between life on God's terms and a life where they can make up their own morality, a choice between blessing and curse, a choice between the order that we see God bring in creation and the chaos that was there before God started to create. Humanity has knowledge of God's goodness and 
will and the opportunity to live according to it because he presents this choice to them. They function as they were made to only when they live within the parameters that the Creator has given to them. Why is that? Why is that the case? It's because of the answer to the fourth question of destiny. See, I think the key to understanding the destiny is actually right in the middle of the chapters, the part that Betty read to us. On the seventh day, what does God do? At the end of his creation, he rests. So I've been looking forward to some rest at the moment. I've had a pretty hectic uh, few weeks. School holidays uh, were kind of organised chaos and I'm really looking forward to this afternoon and just settling down with my family. Uh, I don't know if I'll get a nana nap in, but it'll be nice to get over to Kalimna Park this afternoon and just relax. But God's rest here, it's not out of exhaustion. It's not like he got to people and was kind of knocked up and had to have a lie down. It's the kind of rest that happens that kind of think about the time that you mowed your lawn or weeded your garden and it wasn't that you were tired but that it was now as it should be and you spent the next couple of hours just sitting there enjoying it with a cup of tea. It's the... Okay, can we say a beer? Okay. But it's the kind of rest that happens when you labour over a meal for hours and hours and then, not out of exhaustion, but because it's completed, you sit down and you enjoy that meal. You sit down and take it in. Maybe you can relate to one of those stories. See, when... When God here rests, it's not because he's tired, but it's because everything is being put right. Everything is as it should be. Um, God rests in this passage. It's really a description of peace. It's a picture of peace. Everything is at peace. It begins in the first verse of chapter 1 with this wild, dark, chaotic picture. But then at the end, it's now a functioning and ordered place. See, God's involvement has meant that out of his goodness, things have been set right and it's now at peace. There's something else to note about this last day of creation. See, on this last day, unlike days one to six, there is no evening. It doesn't end. See, when we're talking about destiny... The way that God created was to be a place of everlasting peace for people to enjoy eternal relationships in everlasting provision with their creator. And the destiny was for people to bear the image of the creator throughout that eternity. This is not a separate idea. See, we too are made to be in a state of peace. But bearing the image of God isn't a static thing. It's inherent in that we're all image bearers of God, but it's also dynamic because it comes for us as we fulfill those commands up in verses 27, as we're commanded to fill and subdue and rule alongside God. See, it's when we're doing those things that we're bearing the image of God. It's the things that God himself does in chapter 1, 3 to 25. That's what he commands us to do in verse 28. It's 
it is in that that we're like him and that we can really bear his image. Now, because there is a Genesis chapter 3, we know that this kind of utopian ideal of the world is not the reality. We know that this is not the world that we live in anymore. And if you think about chapter 3 and what you know of Genesis chapter 3, in terms of uh, origin, morality, uh, meaning and destiny, we can see there that Adam and Eve's worldview is challenged in chapter 3. The first thing that the serpent says to them is, did God really say? He questions whether all truth originates with God. Here is the snake with this alternate version of origin. This alternate version of meaning. Is there meaning just bearing God's image? The snake questions this meaning as if to say, there's another way for them to be like God. Is what God has said untrue? Is he morally good? The snake causes them to question that. The snake deceives them in that. And as for the destiny of it all, the snake promises a new destiny that they will become all-knowing. But in fact, what really happens to that destiny is that the original creation is destroyed. And where there once was blessing, there's now curse. There's death and not eternal peace. See, our world is so far from the Genesis 1-2 to 2 picture that it's hardly believable. How can we believe the Genesis 1-2 to 2 worldview? How can we speak to issues um, from the Genesis 1-2 to 2 worldview? Well, that's because that's not the end of the story either. It's because in Jesus we actually see what God was doing at creation reinstated, remade. Think about this for a second. Our origin. Well, what does Jesus say about our origin? Who is Jesus? The New Testament teaches that he's the uncreated one, born of a virgin, not created. He's the son of God who in his life displays that same power over creation and recreates in everything that he does. Think about what the gospel is. It's a recreation. I accept Jesus and I'm made new. I'm born again. He uh, he recreates life in that he offers a way for people to be reborn into a new life. Well, think about meaning. What does Jesus say about our meaning? The New Testament in Colossians tells us that he's the, invi- the image of the invisible God. The New Testament teaches us that he enjoys perfect relationship with the Father. He fulfills that meaning of relationships that was given to us by being in that perfect relationship. And yet going to the cross and having that relationship broken and then coming to life again and restoring it. within that framework that God set up. Well, what about morality? What can we say of Jesus? Jesus is perfectly good. He lives 100% by that word of God. He chooses the tree of life. See, in choosing the cross, which you could call a tree of death, he defeats death and turns it on its head. This cross brings life to us. 
and think about Jesus and our destiny. See, we learn that Jesus puts people at peace with God and he builds them into a people who will fill the earth and subdue it. At the very end of your Bible, the picture that's given in Revelation chapter 22 in Genesis is where people have lived out that creation command by the grace of Jesus to fill and subdue the earth. Let's read it together to finish up. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will be no need for the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. No more night. No end to that day of peace. So we can throw up topics to preach on over these next few weeks because our world is a messy place. It's chaotic. I don't know about you, but I find the news really tiring to hear day in and day out of things that go wrong. I find working in a public school really tiring. The issues that come up in the lives of children, the attitudes that come through in policies and and the attitudes of some of the teachers that work there. I find interacting in the mess of people's lives tiring. I find the mess that I can see in my own life exhausting and tiring. See, sometimes I think God's reality, God's, uh, the, the worldview that God gives us, that picture of Genesis 1 and 2, seems like a dream. It's almost like uh, we, we've got, we read that and we're, we're like the children who've come back from the land of Narnia and they're not sure what, what went on. They talk about it as if it's a dream of a dream. We're going to wade through issues in the coming weeks that don't reflect the truth of God's reality, that don't reflect the world that God created, the world as it's meant to be. Moral issues, issues that arise because that meaning that we have has been lost or forgotten, issues that speak to how broken our creation is, and issues that arise when our world doesn't know where it came from and doesn't know where it's going. And yet we have hope because in Christ, like those verses out of um, Paul's letters at the start, remind us we're given new minds. In Christ, we're given a new way of thinking, empowered by his spirit and called by Jesus. We're given a new way of thinking. Now I'm certain for you, as they will be for me, some of these issues will be difficult for us, difficult for us to think. We might even be tempted to get that list, see when things are on and just stay home the week that that issue comes up for us. Some of these things will feel like they hit a bit too close for home. Yet I think we can be convinced and confident of what the Bible says. Not only because it's logically and consistent, logically consistent and coherent, those words that Ravi Zacharias uses, but because at its core... What we see is a good God. 
at every time that God intervenes in that creation story, it's to bring order out of chaos. It's to form and to fill and to make something good. And at its centre is the loving act of Jesus, our Saviour. See, it comes to us with grace. Grace to bring us into the understanding, even when we're a bit slow together to get there. So like those words in Romans chapter 12 um, tell us, that when we have God's mercy and we offer our lives to him, that he will transform our minds. And let's pray to that end now. Loving Father, I thank you for the opportunity to uh, sit under your word today. Lord, I pray that uh, what we've talked about might be clear and might line up in our heads. And Lord, that it might impact our hearts. Father, we ask that in our hearts uh, we would, by your grace, have the mind of Christ and that we would think and feel and be directed and driven by your truth in your word and by your spirit and we pray that as we interact with people as we seek to share you with other people as we seek to follow you in our own lives Lord we pray that you might continue to gently reshape us and rework us and remould us Lord that we might individually be as you wanted us to be in the first instance. Lord, that as a church we might reflect that, as our communities, gospel communities, we might reflect that too. That we might grow and change and be beacons of light to this truth. That we might show this worldview to the to the world around us. And that we might continue in it even when it's difficult. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.